You can open your Bible to Proverbs 6. And we're going to be giving our attention to a, a bit of a longer text this morning, uh, going from Proverbs 6, verse 20, through the end of chapter 7. And as you turn there, I want to take a moment to remind you of one of our primary commitments as a church. We are committed to this book. We are committed to the Word of God, the Bible, the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, and sufficient Word of God to us and for us. Through this book, God speaks. God, the God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord over all things, He speaks through this book. So this means that we are hearers and witnesses. As we gather, our primary task is to listen to God as we speak through His Word. We speak what we have already received. We bear witness to the one who has first smoke, spoken. So you won't come in here on Sunday, some, sometime next week, or a few years from now, and never open your Bible. Never hear God's Word clearly read, clearly proclaimed. That's our, our commitment. And this commitment extends the idea that this is not just something we tack on as something to be just a part of our service. Like, oh, don't forget to open your Bible today. It's not obligatory. No, the Bible fuels our gatherings. It's the language that we use as we speak to God and, and as we hear from Him. And that's what you've experienced this morning through the songs we've sung, through the prayers that have been prayed, through the encouragement that's been given. We're, we're speaking God's Word to one another. As a church, we're to be like a, a sponge that is soaked through and dripping with the words of this book. And just like you can't touch a soaked sponge and not get wet, so you should not be able to come close to Grace Church and not hear the words of Scripture. Now this commitment also means that we are committed to expository preaching. We aren't here to hear my ideas about God or the Christian life or what's going on in the world. We are here to hear what God says. So we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and as pastors, we labor to speak what Scripture speaks. Now, you likely know this if you've been attending this church for any length of time. You've heard me or Larry or John or Chris say this before. So why am I reminding you of this? I want to remind you of this this morning because we are prone to forget. And we are prone to forget that, that listening or not listening to these words is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of flourishing and destruction. When God speaks, He speaks words that are both words of life and blessing and death and destruction. There are only two ways to live. Either we listen and receive and live, or we ignore and reject and die. This is serious stuff. Sobering stuff. So we must listen. And we must keep God's Word at the center of our lives and our thoughts. We must desire His wisdom from the beginning. And we must walk in His ways. And this is the message of Proverbs, especially these first nine chapters. And its message is much like the rest of the Bible. It holds out to us the goodness of God's ways. 
the goodness of living according to God's created order. And it calls on us to listen to Him and to follow Him alone. The Bible tells us that God has broken into our sin-sick world because of His love and for His glory. And so then our response to this work of deliverance, to this salvation that Scripture tells us of, is to, as, as Deuteronomy 6.5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Our response is, is as Joshua 22.5 says, to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. And we need one another to do this. That's why we gather together, to remind one another of what we've heard, to remind one another of who God has shown Himself to be, to remind one another to walk in His ways. And our, our text that we're going to look at this morning begins in the same place. And if you're there, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in Proverbs 6, verse 20. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then make a few comments. This is the Word of God. Again, God is speaking to us. Proverbs 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. The wise teacher has been making this plea again and again. And again, it's something we see throughout the Old Testament in particular. We see this in Deuteronomy 6. It's like this, the, the chorus of his song over these first nine chapters, that's what this, this plea is, to listen to your parents so that it will go well with you. Love wisdom and you will walk in the way of life. And this wisdom that is held out, the teaching of the mother, the commandments of the father, this is represented in God's word. What we bind on our hearts and tie on our necks is God's word. His word is to be our ever-present companion always with us in every situation, wherever we go. And the father, the wise teacher, he tells us why, he tells us why, beginning in verse 22. The father doesn't teach for his own ego. He teaches for his son's good. Because this teaching, these commands, this word is for our good, for our protection, for our companionship. Verse 22, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So when you don't know where to go, God's Word will lead you. When you are at your most vulnerable, God's Word will watch over you. When you're going about your day, God's Word will speak to you. In the dark, God's Word will be your light. In your failing, in your sin, God's Word will be your salvation. This is one theme that runs through the heart of Proverbs, and it's one that's easy to miss or easy to take for granted. We see it there at the end of uh, verse 23, where it says that these words of God reprove us. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. That, meaning that God's Word is always correcting before it is restoring. I want us to, to think about that for just a moment. God doesn't come to us and say, you're fine the way you are. No. 
No, God comes to us and in his word says over and over again, you're a mess. You're dead in your sins. You are without hope in the world. But it's here in coming to the end of ourselves that we learn the path to life. It's here that we can hear the good news of salvation. These words of reproof, the reproofs of discipline, come to teach us the way of life. Proverbs is all about these reproofs, these corrective words. So may we have ears to hear his word. May we have desires that are shaped by his word, hearts to receive his word, hands that hold on to his word, feet that walk in the ways of his word. And this is where the Father begins. These words are the path to life. They are your protection. But where does he go next? What do these words protect us from? Where does the urgency of his teaching come from? Well, this is where our commitment to expository preaching can be really helpful for us. You see, there are some topics that can seem just easier to avoid. Some things we don't really want to talk about much. Uh, it might be because they're unpopular, maybe because they're uncomfortable, maybe because they might step on people's toes. But God knows what we need. And, and God's word is able to know what we need better than we know what we need. And our text today is filled with an urgency that is meant to encourage us on the path of life. So what is the greatest concern in this moment of the father for his son? We see this in verse 24. Why must the son guard his steps, guard the word? Why? Verse 24, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. The father does not mince words. He's not nervous to talk about sex and fidelity with his son. He does not shy away from difficult topics. He goes right to the place where he is most concerned, his son is most vulnerable, where he is in greatest danger. And it's this category of adultery. It's that temptation to desire what is not yours, to be unfaithful to the commitments you've made, to covet another man's wife. And instead of just stating the seventh commandment, which he could have done. He could have just told his son, the Lord said you shall not commit adultery. Don't do it. And we could be done. But the father doesn't do that. Instead of just telling him, he intends to show his son by painting a picture of reality. And he uses God's gift of imagination in order to help his son know wisdom. You see, we live in a world that, that tells us really experience is the path to knowledge. If we want to know something, then we should go do it, good or bad. We often think that ex experience is the best teacher. But experience is not the best teacher. God is the best teacher. The Bible, the Word of God for us, is the best teacher. And I've said it before, where the world says you must live in order to learn, Proverbs comes along and says, no, you must learn in order to live. And in Proverbs, what we receive is not only this call to live, but we receive stories that we are able to live into, that we are able to enter into, that we are able to experience so that we might learn. Proverbs gives us pictures of reality. My daughter Caitlin told me that it's kind of like Proverbs is like a snow globe. She said, you can use that if you want to in your sermon. You can use that. It's like a snow globe, a little picture of reality pictures and stories so that we can know how life works and then live accordingly. 
And that's what we receive in our text today, this picture of reality, this picture of what it looks like to be seduced by an adulteress. And this is a lesson you don't need to learn through experience, thank God. It's a lesson you should not learn through experience because it will kill you. And we're going to look at our text under just two broad headings this morning. Number one, the high cost of adultery. And number two, the path of adultery. Number one, the cost of adultery. Here's the Father's warning. We see it in verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. The Father recognizes that adultery begins with our desires. It begins with what's inside of us. We want what we do not have, so we covet. The Father says, don't do it. Notice also that the Father recognizes beauty. She might be beautiful, but it's not beauty for you. For you, it's, it's irrelevant beauty. One pastor comments, he says, if only evil were always ugly, life would be simpler. If only everything were color-coded to make it obvious. If only there were warning labels on all the poisons. But in this world, disaster can be attractive. In this world, disaster can be attractive. And then he quotes 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This is the world that we live in. A world in which disaster can be attractive. The temptations that we face are temptations precisely because they come to us in packages that seem attractive. They come to us looking like they will make us happy. That they'll add enjoyment or goodness to our lives. But we need wisdom. We need God's wisdom to see through the deadly lies that seek to wear masks of truth. This wisdom will lay bare to us the high cost of adultery. Hear how the Father describes this cost, beginning in verse 26. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Then he asks, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. The father compares this desire and flirtation with with carrying fire next to your chest. Fire, when we bring it close to our clothes, only does one thing. It's the same thing that, that walking on hot coals does to our feet. Do you know what that is? It burns them. And this is what adultery does to those who engage in it. It will destroy you. It will cost you your life. Then the the teacher makes this argument that we might have sympathy on someone who steals foods that they don't starve. There's, There's mercy for this person. But for the one who commits adultery, it will cost him everything he has. I was recently talking to a friend who told, uh, who, who told me of a conversation they had with someone else who was talking to their financial advisor and how their financial advisor told them that the most devastating thing that one can do for your financial future is get divorced. If you want a brighter financial future, then, then don't get divorced. And since the majority of divorces are caused by infidelity, don't commit adultery. Now that's the world's wisdom. But God's wisdom is even more blunt than that. We don't have to read any surveys about reasons for divorce. 
We don't need to gather any divorce statistics. We just need to read the Bible. Look at verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. This is far more severe than just being a bad idea. This verse says that, that adultery will destroy you. It will show you to be the fool that you are. And notice whose fault this destruction is. It's, it's self-destruction. He, the adulterer, will destroy himself. Verse 33 says that he will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Adultery will be this man's legacy. His, his grandkids will be like, oh yeah, grandpa was the one who committed adultery. But not only does the adulterer destroy himself, it affects everyone else. Now movies and TV shows and that little voice inside our head might tell us that it's, yeah, it's completely innocent. No one else will ever know. It'll ask us, you know, what's the big deal if this takes place between consenting adults? We just want to be happy. But the Bible tells us that sin never stays secret. God knows it all. He sees it all. And our sin will find us out. And in the case of adultery, others will eventually find out, including the husband of the woman who commits adultery. And this is where the father turns as he warns his son, verse 34. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation who refuse, though you multiply gifts. There's no easy out for the man who takes another man's wife. So the father presents to the son, to us, the, the ugliness of adultery, the high cost of adultery, the insanity of adultery. For the adulterer, the problem is not just that you were selfish, that you didn't consider others' interests more important than your own. The problem is that you played with fire and you destroyed yourself. And Grace Church, we should talk about sin this way, with this same bluntness. We should talk about this, it this way to one another. We should talk about it this way with our children. I came across an article this past week that was discussing how we often miss the point in how we talk about the problem of pornography in our culture today. We live in this culture stained with the filth of pornography, but oftentimes the arguments that we use for avoiding it only speak about its selfishness. It's, it's just self-centered, so don't do it. But while selfishness is a big problem, it misses the point. Uh, the, the author of this article, he stated, we should be telling children, young man, you shouldn't watch porn because it is terrible for you. And it, is even, it isn't even pleasurable. It's a form of self-torture. Porn will turn your brain to mush and destroy your body and cause you pain as it does so. That's essentially what Proverbs is telling us about adultery as well. It will destroy you. Stay away from this woman. Stay away from adultery, because if you don't, then it will destroy you. This is the high cost of adultery. As the father continues to show this lesson, he turns to our second maid heading, and that is the, the path of adultery. Number two, the path of adultery. The other day I saw one of my sons reading a book, and I was curious what it was, actually, because I saw both of them reading it at different points. And the title was this, Deadly Hearts, History's Most Dangerous People. Now the, the book profiles various people telling their story and the atrocities they committed. And you can imagine some of the inclusions. People like Hitler and Napoleon and Genghis Khan. 
But if the teacher of Proverbs was composing this book, there's another chapter that would have been included, another profile given. Do you want to know what the Bible thinks about history's most dangerous people? Well, we get a profile here right in this text. The father gives to his son a profile of one of the most dangerous people in history, the adulteress. In order to stay off of the path of adultery, you must be able to recognize her. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. You hear lots of similar language that was used beginning in verse 20 of chapter 6. The importance of keeping God's word close to us. And the reason why, in this case, is to protect us from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. What makes this woman so dangerous? One of history's most dangerous people? What makes her so dangerous? It's her words. Her words are described as smooth words. To those tempted by her, they are, they are words that are smooth and seductive. But to the wise, though these words be smooth, the wise knows them to be not seductive, but destructive. Bruce Waltke writes, commentator, he writes, her weaponized tongue aims to rip apart the godly home at the seam where the generations are sewn together. In, in marriage, the generations are sewn together. Marriages produce children. We are called to multiply. And through the smooth words of the adulteress, her weaponized tongue aims to rip this apart. Her smooth words seek to overthrow God's order, God's good design, God's call to fidelity, to purity, to faithfulness, to wholeness. And her words are in direct competition with these words of wisdom. They're an attempt to pull the sun away from this wisdom. And to present her danger, to reveal her strategies, the father paints this vivid portrait of the path to adultery, beginning in verse 6. He says this, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Now, Proverbs uses this category of, of simple. We've talked about it before. It's used to talk about those who are impressionable, those who, are, who aren't committed to a certain way. It's used for the young who are just kind of along for the ride of life, keeping their options open. They're curious. And among the simple, the teacher sees more specifically a young man lacking sense. And what is the simple young man out doing? Verse 8, the young man lacking sense was passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. What's this young man lacking sense doing? Not much of anything. 
I, and it, at this point, all seems kind of innocent. He's just taking a walk as it gets dark. It seems fine enough, right? No, it's not okay. Someone once told me, you know, there's not a lot of good that happens after 10 p.m. And I have seen this to be true in my own life. Most of the biggest blunders that I've seen young people make happen when they otherwise should be asleep. And the father knows this. He knows that without wisdom, the young and simple, they don't have a clue about the danger of their wandering. This young man is out near her corner, on the road to her house. And in his wandering, the son puts himself in the way of temptation, in the way of danger. He's not concerned. He thinks he can handle it. I can watch that movie. I can go to that website. It's reminiscent of the words of 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, we read about the time when kings go out to battle, how David remained at Jerusalem. And verse 2 of chapter 11 says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. There was a place David should have been. There was a task that David should have been busy with, but instead he is aimless, uncommitted, letting his mind and eyes wander. In our text, the father goes on to describe what happens next in our scene as a result of the son's wandering. Verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, in every corner, she lies in wait. This woman is not mature. She is not reserved. She's the life of the party. She aims to be the center of attention. She doesn't have time for grocery shopping or conversation. She is active and outgoing. And life is a game to her. She's not concerned about the consequences of her action. And she knows, just like Potiphar's wife knew as she pursued Joseph, she knows that she can frame this any way she wants. And so in verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. Her words to this young man lacking sense, they hold out the promise of, of pleasure, of anonymity, secrecy, of opportunity, of intent. But her words, they're not sincere words. In verse 12, we saw how she goes out, how she desires attention. The idea that she's been waiting for this young man, that she came out to meet him, to seek him eagerly, doesn't really fit with what we just learned about her. You see, she wasn't seeking him because of who he was, because of his attractiveness, but because of his stupidity. He's a young man lacking sense. She invites him into her home to take their fill of love, and her argument is not that adultery is right and good. Her argument is that no one will know. 
that they can get away with it. My husband is gone. What happens in my house will stay in my house. In the words of one song, what happens down in Mexico will stay in Mexico. No one will know. And then, as if under a spell, the young man follows her. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The scene ends with the certain destruction of the young man. It doesn't matter what door the young man enters. Just like an ox that goes into a slaughterhouse, every door leads to death. This path will cost him his life. There was a season several years back that, that a few acquaintances that I had, all in ministry of some capacity, all experienced moral failure and lost everything they had. I was talking to a seminary professor, a friend of mine, and he said, you know, I read Proverbs Every day, I read a, a proverb every day. And every month, on the seventh day of the month, I come to Proverbs 7. And every month, I'm reading this narrative, and I'm thinking, young man, don't go in there. Don't do it. And every month, he does it. And I wonder why. Why, like, why do I need this reminder every month? And he was sobered by what had been going on in these, in these acquaintances that we both had and just said, I need that reminder every month. And this was a man that you would know his name, and he is nearing 70. And he said, I need this reminder every month. Because we are, we are prone to wander. We're all susceptible. We are called to take heed lest we fall. So let us be sobered by these words. We know that this step will cost him his life. He should know that it will cost him his life. Yet through the door he goes, and it will cost him his life. And after showing this path of adultery, the teacher comes back to directly address his pupils. Verse 24, And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Oh, young, young men who are here, listen to me. Old men who are here, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not her heart turn aside to her ways. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For her house is the way to death. You know, the vividness of this story is, is like the stuff of Hollywood. It's actually better than the stuff of Hollywood because it's true and honest in its ending, where it goes. You know, this path, as you go through this narrative, it, it, 
seems right and good to the young man, to the simple. It seems anonymous. It seems pleasurable. It's, it's exciting. But Hollywood doesn't often give us the certain destruction of the one who was just trying to live their best life now. It doesn't show us the certain destruction of the one who was just being true to themselves and went down this path. It doesn't show us the certain destruction of the one who went down this path just because they wanted to be happy. No, Hollywood twists these endings into something else. They don't deal with the consequences of adultery, the certain destruction at the end of this path. But the Bible takes us right there. It shows us that the path of infidelity, what seems like the innocent path of, of flirtation, is a path to sure destruction. So we must ask ourselves, what does this all mean for us today? We may also wonder, yes, adultery is bad, I get it. But why does Proverbs want us to pay so much attention to it? I think the answers to these questions, they're related. You see, while not committing adultery is important and is the focus and urgency of this text, when we consider the entire story of Scripture, we find that adultery, marital unfaithfulness, and marriage, they're meant to be, to be images of a far more significant reality. And that is the relationship between God and His people. So God gives us the gift of marriage as a, as a picture, as a pointer to how he deals with us, how, with how he purposes to relate to us. God is a faithful, loving, covenant-keeping God. He is committed to his people. He gives himself for his people. He lays down his life for his people. He cares for his people. He loves his people. And God calls us, his church, his bride. And as his bride, we are called to be faithful to him, submitted to him, following him, loving him. And you read the storyline of Scripture, and it tells a story of a people who did not remain faithful. Throughout the New Testament, especially, the people of God are described as an adulterous wife. In Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 13, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Then he goes on to say, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, the smooth words of the adulteress that we encounter in Proverbs 7 are much like the smooth words of the world. One commentator says that, that they're a symbolic representation of a seductive worldview, alien to true Israel, God's son. So you may be sitting here thinking like, adultery is just kind of so far from anything that I will ever face or could ever face. Perhaps that's you. But we are all tempted to believe the lies that this world presents to us, the lies of our flesh. We are all tempted and, and susceptible to this seductive worldview that, that stands in opposition to God. That tells us that, you know, living for your own happiness, that's okay. That tells us that, you know what, doing all you can for your career and serving God, you can do both. Lies, lies all around us. And God's word comes in 
And it speaks in a living and active way. Hebrews describes God's Word as something that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Because it doesn't just pierce our bodies, it, it pierce our, pierces our souls and our, our spirits. God's Word comes to us and convicts us of our utter hopelessness in ourselves. But God's Word also comes, and in the midst of that hopelessness, in the midst of our depravity, speaks grace. So God's word to you can be either words of judgment and only judgment or words of judgment and grace and life and hope. Brothers and sisters, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Our hope this morning is not in our ability on our own to stand against temptation. Our hope this morning is in a faithful God who has promised to never leave nor forsake those who are his. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Perhaps as we've gone through this text, you've been convicted of, of areas of wandering in your life, or areas where you've faced temptation, relationships that you've had or you do have, places where you've convinced yourself that, you know, like this relationship is totally innocent, it's fine. Perhaps you're feeling some of that conviction. Know this, there's hope for you this morning. There's hope for you as you repent of your sin, as you turn and you trust in our good and faithful Savior. Because His mercies... They never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Limitation 3 says, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Maybe you're in a place where you don't want to wait any longer. But the Lord is good to those who wait for Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. May the Lord give us grace to walk in his ways faithfully before him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we are, we are sobered by the urgent warning of this father, the urgent words of this father to his son. We live in a world that wants us to give in to our sin, that wants us to believe that we should be pursuing our own pleasure, that we should be defined by whatever we want to be defined by. We should be defined by our own happiness. But your word comes in and, and, and shatters this idolatry and these lies. Nor do you be, give us grace to walk in wisdom and to know truth. To understand the high cost of adultery and the great gift and blessing of following you and walking your ways. Lord, do you protect our church, protect our community from the destructive nature of sexual sin? Would we walk in purity to the glory and praise of your name? Amen.